like the foundational doctrine of our faith, the resurrection of the Messiah. Paul says, like, if there was no resurrection, your faith is futile, right? God, Jesus entrusted that message first with a woman. Welcome to the Word of Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 15. I interviewed David Wilbur. David is an author, speaker, and apologist. We talk about his book, Is God a Misogynist?, which covers a lot of difficult passages of the Bible involving women that deal with issues like polygamy and adultery. But we focus our discussion in this episode on one chapter in particular, Does the Bible Exclude Women from Ministry? We try to answer that question and more like, what does it mean to be submissive, and which is better for women, feminism or Christianity? So with no further ado, let's get weird. Uh, so let's jump in. Um, why don't you start off just by telling us a little bit about yourself uh, and how you came to know Christ? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's a, it's an honor. Um, so my name is David Wilbur. Uh, I grew up as a a Christian. Well, I grew up being raised as a Christian in a Lutheran church, the Lutheran denomination. Um, but I didn't really come to know Christ in a personal way until I went to a youth group. Um, I started attending a a youth group at a Baptist church and it was at a particular youth group event called Friday night fever and, uh, you know, typical, uh, youth group event name, Uh, But it was there where I heard the gospel uh, in a way that really touched me and impacted me. And and, um, so, you know, I uh, prayed with some people. I gave my life to the Lord. And ever since then, um, I've just, um, you know, been following him, learning more about him, um, learning more about what it means to follow him. Uh, I've always been interested in apologetics. And uh, I was kind of thrust into that um, area, uh, especially in high school when um, when I started following the Lord um, after, after, you know, when I started attending the youth group and when I, I came to know the Lord in a personal way and it became, you know, more part of my life. Yeah. Well, a lot of my friends at that time were um, not Christians. And so I was sort of pushed into having to defend my faith and and having answers to their types of objections. And so I've always been interested in that. Um, but, uh, yeah, that really, you know, I've grown in, in that area, especially, you know, just, just some events in my life that, that have caused me to question some things and, um, you know, really caused me to just dig in to this area and, um, and come to find out there's a lot of other people that had some of the same struggles that I did. And so uh, during Bible studies, I would uh, start teaching and, and sharing some of the things that I've been learning while, you know, watching YouTube apologists and, and reading, uh, you know, resources dealing with the types of objections and things that I was facing. And so around that time, um, you know, it was confirmed to me by many of my peers and mentors that this was um, a calling that I had in my life to pursue ministry, to pursue uh, particularly apologetics ministry. Yeah. And so that's, that's just kind of how, um, 
you know, how, how that sort of developed, uh, which, you know, brought me to where I am now. Yeah. So that's awesome, man. Um, makes a lot of sense because, uh, our, our topic is going to primarily be, uh, based around your book is got a misogynist. And I love that title because it's, it's direct. It's to the point, you know, I can read that. I know it's catching and, um, it's apologetic in nature. So it's, it's not, it's not general Christian apologetics, but, uh, it's apologetic within that, the topic of women. And I think that's an important topic, uh, that, that sometimes can be, can be glossed over because you really tackle some really hard questions, uh, that would cause people to step away from the faith. And a lot of people Mm -hmm. do, um, struggle with a lot of the teaching in the Bible because they're, they're perceiving it in, 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 a, in a certain kind of way that uh, that's, that's unloving, uh, that they that they they just can't wrap their head around. And so I love that you were able to tackle all those topics um, in, in your book. Uh, so um, I'm going to focus the the topic primarily on one chapter. But uh, will you, I guess, uh, give us a rundown of like what are the what are the chapters and what are the topics that that you tackle in this book? It's got a misogynist uh, before mm-hmm. we kind of narrow down um, on the women and leadership chapter. Sure. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. Um, you know, this book, it really kind of came about, um, because of, uh, some personal friends of mine, uh, well, acquaintances really, but, um, I was, you know, people that I knew were beginning to walk away from their faith, um, do particularly to, uh, objections that feminists were making. So, um, like modern secular feminists, they look at the Bible and they look at Christianity as sort of a, um, you know, a hindrance to gender equality. And, and they look at, uh, the Bible as oppressive toward women and that the authors of the Bible treat women as property and, and things like that. And so um, I've heard a lot of those objections and I was talking to a lot of these people and, and I started writing articles and things like that, just sort of dealing with various topics. Yeah. And so it, it just sort of, um, it, it just sort of came together from there. I'm like, you know, I, this is a, a topic that I, I started really getting passionate about. I started, I, I got a ton of books on the topic and, and I just, uh, I just felt led to put together a book uh, addressing with these particular objections to the Bible that you would often hear from uh, atheists and secular feminists, uh, in particular as it concerns women, Uh, you know, because, you know, women have, um, you know, genuine uh, concerns uh, about um, some of the stuff that's in the Bible and, and, uh, and I, I think that, uh, I don't think that God is a misogynist. So that, that's a spoil alert for the book. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the book is, um, it's all about um, answering these objections from, from modern feminists. And uh, so I, I, I deal with a lot of topics. I, I kind of, the first chapter sort of uh, is a broad overview of God's perspective on women. And I make a positive case that the Bible, rather than denigrating women or uh, teaching that women are inferior to men, it actually promotes uh, male-female equality. It actually promotes the, the idea that women are valuable and that women, like men, um, are part of God's uh, purpose and, and uh, in creation, that he's given them intrinsic value and a mission 
um, that women are meant to work alongside men, that they are to, to be partners together, that women weren't just created as, uh, you know, servants or whatever to men, but they were to serve with men and uh, as, as partners and as equals, ontological equals. And so that's uh, sort of the first chapter. And then from there, I just kind of tackle one by one a lot of these common objections that you'll hear from feminists and atheists, uh, such as that uh, the Bible endorses polygamy. You know, that, that's a big objection that comes yeah. up a lot is, is this idea that, you know, the Bible, uh, the Bible teaches that it's okay for men to have multiple wives. And um, in, I, I have an entire chapter dedicated to that topic where I make the case that no, that that's not what the Bible teaches, that the Bible actually discourages polygamy. And so I have um, a chapter making that case. I have a chapter dealing with some, some other problematic passages in the Bible, like the test for adultery, uh, the test for virginity, uh, which often come up in, um, yeah. you know, from critics of the Bible. I have a passage that deals with, um, or I have a chapter that deals with the passages uh, regarding rape. There's uh, laws in the in the Torah in Deuteronomy 22, dealing with um, uh, giving laws for like uh, what to do like in cases of rape. And there's also uh, an ambiguous passage where, on the surface, it seems like um, women who were raped are required to marry their rapists, and and that's something that a lot of feminists bring up. That's something a lot of atheists bring up. And uh, so I deal with that passage. I don't think that's what the passage says, by the way. Uh, but I, I go and and I I unpack a lot of a lot of passages like that, and a lot of issues like that that concern women in the Bible. And then, of course, uh, the topic that we're going to be talking about today is: um, Are women excluded from ministry? Are are they are they just meant to be seen and not heard? Are they just meant to? stay in the kitchen while the men do the real work in ministry and, and in leading and in teaching. And um, so I, I, I deal with those uh, types of objections as well um, that you often hear from, from feminists, atheists, and, and even some fundamentalist Christians, you know, that's a, a popular uh, position within Christianity as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, you know, so I, I I hope that in addition to answering objections from critics, that I can also bring correction to some areas uh, where I believe a, a lot of Christians are actually in error, and, and so this is one of those areas. Yeah, yeah, I really love the book, and I think it's it's a great resource for someone within the church that struggles with some of these questions. Um, I remember when I was going through marital counseling that was actually a question that that I had uh for our pastor um because I always read through Genesis and we, we we hear about Jacob um and as a patriarch uh and one of the fathers of of our faith um it it it, it was always something that uh didn't sit well with me that he essentially had four four you know he had children with four different women um mm -hmm. and so uh that was a question that I had um and it, it's, it's one that, you know, oftentimes is only, you know, we only touch the surface of it and we kind of just put that in a box and we have one answer for it. And, and, and you know, but we don't really get into the, the, the real nitty gritty for, for some of those that really um, have, have an issue with it. That, that's where this right. comes in, where you, you, can, you can really dig deep 
uh, and, and show, um, give a real answer to, to those that have the objections to it. So it's great for some of those that, that are within the church. And it's also a great resource for, like you said, if you have uh, a friend that's, that's on the outside that wants mm-hmm. to point the finger and say, well, you know, Christians are, are this and that, it's a great res- resource for, for them as well. So um, I love that every, every chapter, you know, tackles a different topic um, and it's concise. Um, it, you know, you, you don't, uh, you, you don't, you don't, uh, go here and there you just keep it nice rooted in scripture um and it, it's you make it real easy to wrap your head around and what i walked away with some of the stuff i had looked into um but maybe not to the extent um that, that you did when, when writing the book so it was real helpful for, for me uh to be able to give an answer for for someone that uh that is questioning uh, about some of these things uh but, but it, it was really encouraging because a lot of those laws um that may be perceived in a certain way to be um, degrading to when we really find right. that our God is, he's really put those in place because he does, because, because of the opposite, he values women, right. Uh, protecting women, uh, you know, th- through these laws. So it's, uh, it's, it's a great read. Um, and, and definitely recommend that. Um, and like I said, I want to focus, um, our discussion and cause a lot of these objections you're going to hear from people outside of the church, but, uh, this one particular chapter about women in, in ministry is, is definitely mm-hmm. where we have debate within the church. Um, and so I think for a lot of Christians, uh, we land differently uh, on mm-hmm. this topic. And so you make a case uh, for it. And so that's where mm-hmm. I, I want to dig in now. Um, you, you give a run through of different women uh, in the Bible, both in the New uh, and Old Testament um, that were within leadership. So I thought we would kind of go through um, each of those women and kind of talk about um what role they played. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, uh, cool. We, we can go ahead and do that. And then we'll, we'll kind of talk about some of the implications behind that. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the first, the first woman that you brought up was, uh, Miriam, uh, most right. wife, uh, tell me a little bit of, about, uh, Miriam. Sure. Well, yeah, thank you so much, uh, for, you know, I'm super, uh, happy to hear that you were blessed by the book and, and, yeah. uh, that that was helpful to you. Um, but yeah, the, this particular topic and, you know, I'm, as we go through these women, um, I think it's at, at the outset important to recognize like w- why this is significant because um, often I think that when it comes to the topic of women in ministry and, and there are, you know, within the church, there are these differing perspectives and there's actually kind of like a spectrum, which I, I may talk about a little bit later. There's a spectrum. It's there's extremes on both sides yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of the issue, but there's a lot of nuance mm-hmm, for sure. here. And uh, yeah, when it comes to this teaching though, the, the approach that I've taken is that, okay, there are a couple of passages, really one passage in particular in the New Testament that seems to um, see it seems to prohibit women from teaching and any sort of public ministry, uh, and that's you know First Timothy chapter two, uh, verse twelve, and so that that's really like the the number one passage that that it's cited, like oh well, women should not be uh, in ministry. Yeah. And so all of these examples that we're going to go through of women who served in leadership and who functioned in public ministry roles and who exercised authority as teachers and uh, even authority over men, um, those are sort of looked at as exceptions 
Right. Like, okay, well, these are uh, exceptions to the rule, um, you know, that women are not supposed to be in leadership. I actually think it's the opposite. I think that we should view the one passage that, that uh, seems to prohibit women uh, from ministry as the exception to the rule that women are permitted to serve in these various roles. And I, I just think that um, when you look at the plethora of biblical evidence uh, on that side, I, I think I think it just makes more sense to view the one passage as an exception rather than view all of these other passages uh, and all of these other examples of women in leadership right. yeah. uh, as, as the exception. So really quick, just to go through some of these, you, you already mentioned Miriam. Uh, of course, um, you know we know her as uh, Moses and Aaron's sister. Scripture identifies her as a prophetess. So, you know, that uh, implies authority and, and speaking um, on, you know, for God. Uh, the prophet Micah specifically cites her and her brothers as the, the one who led Israel out of Egypt. So she, Moses, and Aaron led Israel out of Moses. So she's or, or led them out of uh, Egypt. So she's uh, explicitly identified as one of the leaders of Israel. Right. And uh, scripture just matter-of-factly presents her as a leader without any note of condemnation. And so this is the, the prophet Micah. And, you know, this is, a, this suggests that the idea that Miriam was a leader of uh, Israel, you know, was already established uh, belief by Micah's time, you know, that this was already well uh, known and recognized among the people of God. Uh, you also have other women like Deborah, um, just uh, focusing on the Old Testament right now. She was a prominent judge. She was a prophetess, uh, and she was also a military leader of Israel, as we see in Judges 4 uh, through 5. And um, she, as a judge, she held the highest position of authority in her time, and she exercised authority over both men and women who would come and bring their disputes to her. And, and you know, her role as a prophetess also suggests spiritual authority uh, to be able to speak for God, to be able to speak God's words and uh, represent God in that role. Uh, you also have Hulda, um, and scripture identifies her as a prophetess and advisor to King Josiah. In fact, her prophecy that we, as we read about in 2 Chronicles 34, it actually authenticated the authority of the written Torah uh, that was found in the house of the Lord. And so scholars go back and they look at this as like one of like the first uh, steps of the process of canonization. God chose this woman, this woman prophetess, to be, you know, to be the first one to authenticate through uh, the word of the Lord that, yes, these, these writings, the, the Torah that is found in the book of, uh, the, or the house of the Lord, that is scripture, that is the word of God. And um, so God used a woman to validate written scriptures uh, and you know, obviously that that's uh, very important to, to our religion, uh, to Judaism and Christianity, um, sacred scriptures. Um, when you get to the New Testament, there's uh, uh, numerous examples of women functioning in, in leadership roles. I mean, first of all, you have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, which uh, came upon both 
sons and daughters, it says, both men and women who yeah. would prophesy. And so this uh, pouring out of the Holy Spirit, uh, enabling God's people to fulfill the great commission to the ends of the earth, right? This spirit was poured out on both men and women. Both men and women are called to prophesy, to go out, to make disciples, um, you have, uh, among those women, uh, numerous of them are, are, you know, they're specifically mentioned like Priscilla. She was a, a missionary and a teacher, according to scripture. In fact, she and her husband, um, tutored Apollos. So we all know about Apollos in the new Testament. Yeah. Well, in Acts 18, 26, it says that Priscilla ha and her husband had to tutor him in private in order to teach him, um, you know, some stuff that he was missing basically like he, you know, they, they had to teach him the truth more accurately, it says, so that he could be yeah. more effective in, in his ministry. And so God used a woman, God used Priscilla in order to train up, to disciple this great messianic Jewish apologist, yeah. um, Apollos. Um, Priscilla was also a facilitator of a home church, as we see in first Corinthians 16. You have um, Junia, Junia is identified as an apostle, and apostles essentially functioned as church planters at this time, and they, they provided, in addition to planting churches, they provided ongoing pastoral guidance to local congregations. We see this with Paul's letters, right? Yeah. The apostle Paul, he's writing, giving guidance to the leadership of these various congregations. Well, Junia, a woman, is also identified as an apostle. And some people try to dispute this. Some people say that, oh, she's not really an apostle, or they sometimes, some people actually say that, no, she's actually a man. Uh, I deal with all of that in the book. Um, you know, the, the uh, uh, arguments for that are, um, are uh, not great. So, uh, but just, uh, just to keep going, um, you also have um, Phoebe. Phoebe, of course, she was uh, the courier of Paul's epistle to the community of believers in Rome, as we read about in uh, chapter 16 of Rome. She's uh, explicitly identified as a deacon, which is one of um, you know, the offices of leadership within the congregation. And um, as the courier of the letter to Romans, she would have been expected to read the letter out loud to the community and also ask questions about Paul's theology and some of the things that Paul says in the letter. Uh, that would have been an expectation of couriers at that time. So right there, uh, Phoebe, you know, she, I mean, we all know how important the book of Romans is and <laughs> how theologically rich that is and how foundational that letter is. Well, got, uh, Paul entrusted a woman to deliver that letter, to explain it to the community, to answer questions, and so on and so forth. And so um, there are numerous other examples. Um, I provide a, you know, a few more in the book. But yeah, there's, um, you know, there, there's a lot, there's a lot there that I think has been sort of um, overlooked uh, or kind of just dismissed because we already approach the scriptures assuming one particular position. I are, you know, what I would suggest is that many Christians, because of church tradition, because they 
grew up learning that, oh, women are supposed to be excluded from ministry. They're supposed to be excluded from uh, public ministry or leadership or teaching um, authoritatively. You know, we already grow up learning that, or those are what our denominations or traditions teach. And so we approach scripture with that presupposition. And so when we see all of these examples uh, that I, that I went through, uh, several of them that I went through, uh, we, we are kind of inclined to, to dismiss them. But I think that the implications of these women that we see in scripture, many of them that Paul calls, you know, co-laborers with him, many who are identified as teachers, as prophetesses, um, you know, facilitators of home churches, um, you know, apostles, uh, deacons. I, I think that the implications of that are, are uh, worth considering and uh, maybe maybe reconsidering some of our traditional um, views that we've held and to see if they really match up with what scripture teaches. Basically, I'm advocating that we approach scripture with fresh eyes and that we consider the evidence honestly. Yeah, it was very well put. Um, and thank, thank you for the introduction to that, um, that kind of run through of those, those women um, because and I, I do want to get to Corinthians and, and, and Timothy and kind of mm-hmm. nail, nail down a little deeper on, on those verses and hear what you mm-hmm. have to say about them. Um, because there, there is this sort of dynamic where you, you, you kind of have to look at what, what's being said in Corinthians and in Timothy. Right. And then you have to look at these examples and you're sort of stuck having to, you know, they, they seem to contradict one another. So, right. That is the right. traditional view to say, well, well, these are exceptions, um, or in extreme cases, um, you know, Junia, that that's a boy's name, or you know, tr- try right. to try to downplay it essentially, um, and try to work your way around it. Um, you know, there are, I think, certain um, uh, uh, interpretations, um, translations, sorry, that don't use the word deacon. Um, they'll actually work their way around it by, by actually mm-hmm. translating that in a different way. So you have certain translations say deacons, certain that say others. And so that's kind of mm-hmm. another example of, of how you how you take one view that you start with and then you sort of want to, uh, you know, alter it to sort of match that view. Um, so right. I do want to nail down that, like I said, uh, you know, I want to get there a little bit later with uh, hear exactly what you have to say specifically about Corinthians and Timothy and, and those verses. Um mm-hmm. But I want to talk about um, a couple other examples as well. Um, actually, when I had that verse that you were referring to about Priscilla, I wanted to read that. And then I wanted to talk about uh, Mary Magdalene and the woman at the well as well. Okay. Because there are a couple other examples um, that really stand out to me. Uh, but this is, this is Acts 18, 24 through 26. This is Priscilla. Um, it's, a, as you mentioned, um, tutoring Apollos uh, with her husband. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in um, Ephesus and from Alexandria in Egypt. Um, Ephesus, sorry. No problem. Um, and he had been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he only knew about John's baptism. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Um, so that's that's that scripture that you were referring to. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can note it, it does say 
that he was eloquent speaker. He knew the scriptures. Um, and then mm-hmm. he taught that with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. Um, and so we see someone that is an, an important uh, pillar uh, right. as, as, as the church is beginning, um, and he's being um, taught more accurately by a female. Uh, so that, that's something that definitely stands out uh, to me when I read that. Um, mm-hmm. You kind of have to look at uh, if, if this is, if women are not supposed to be teaching, then then, then something's really, really backwards there. Uh, but, uh, right. um, Mary, Mary Magdalene, um, she was, uh, I think in, in some writings referred to as the apostle apostles because she was sent out, um, to tell the apostles of essentially what is absolutely the core of, yeah. like, of Christian faith, the resurrection. Right. Um, so, so talk a little bit about, uh, Mary Magdalene. Yeah, well, as, as you just mentioned in, in John 20, I mean, she was there uh, when Jesus had, was after he resurrected, he appeared to her and he literally commissioned her as the first evangelist to testify of the risen Lord, to go and tell the, uh, tell the others, tell the, 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 his disciples about um, the resurrection. And so I think that is um, profound. Uh, it's, it's profound. There's many layers to this, right? Because it's, it's profound. But when you think about it, especially in its cultural context, yeah. um, you, women's testimonies were, uh, you know, kind of considered generally untrustworthy in this time period. Those were just kind of like the cultural sentiments. We see this in Josephus and, and other writings. Uh, so the fact that the biblical authors go uh, so far to mention this, like that, you know, I mean, that, that was a huge deal. Like in, when you consider that uh, cultural context, especially, and the fact that man, the core, like the foundational doctrine of our faith, the resurrection of the Messiah, Paul says, like, if there was no resurrection, your faith is futile, right? God Jesus entrusted that message first with a woman. And so I just, I think that that cannot be overstated, that, that the biblical authors make it a point to tell that, uh, you know, to make that point. And that, um, I mean, obviously God inspired that, you know, to be in the scriptures and, and you know, we believe that really happened. And, and so that is, yeah, there's multiple layers uh, to the, you know, for what, for why that is significant. But um, I, like I said, I just don't think that can be overstated. Um, we see the same thing, as you mentioned, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, John four, um, you know, Yeshua, Jesus, he took the time to minister to this woman. He, you know, just that his very interaction with her to begin with, you know, the, the son of God, uh, ministered to this woman, um, and had a theological debate with her, you know, so to speak about, about various issues, uh, between Jews and Samaritans. And he revealed himself as the Messiah to her, you know, the first time that's recorded, right. right, That he revealed in the the gospel of John, the, where he reveals himself as the Messiah. And then she goes and she tells her entire community. And once again, you have to remember this, the cultural context here, you know, that, uh, women's testimonies were considered, 
um, you know, untrustworthy at this time, but she was so received, you know, it, the scriptures say that she was received by her community. They unhesitatingly received her uh, testimony of who the Messiah is and, and who Jesus is. And so I, I think that the fact that the, again, the fact that the biblical author goes, it seems to go out of his way to to put these little nuggets in there, right? You know, it is yeah. considering the the cultural context and and sort of uh, the way that women were viewed at this time. The biblical author seems to go out of his way to elevate women in these in these strategic ways to show the value of women, uh, to show how much they mean to God, to show how important they are to His mission, and uh, so there's so much of this uh, throughout the scripture that, that again, like when you, when you read the scriptures with fresh eyes, when you really look at them, I mean, you, in my opinion, you can't come to any other conclusion that women are, um, you know, they're not second-class citizens in God's kingdom, that they are not inferior. Uh, It's only when we approach the scriptures already assuming something to be the case, whether you are a, um, you know, I'm going on a tangent here, sorry, but, but whether you are a, um, you know, an atheist or a feminist, you know, that has, has been told something about the scriptures, some uh, misperception about them or, or whatever the case may be. And, And so you go to the scriptures already assuming that to be the case. Well, you're going to read that into the scriptures. The same is true when you, have a certain idea about uh, the role of women based on your upbringing and whatever denomination you're part of, your your traditions. You know, we, I mean, we all have presuppositions and and so we have to do our best to try to consider the evidence honestly. And I I think when you do, when you really, uh, when, and especially when these things are highlighted as you're going through it, you're like, oh, wow, like that's, that's undeniable. And so, Anyway, yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, so I want to um, I want to go ahead and just uh, get into our, our verses in, in Timothy and Corinthians that seem to explicitly um, teach against women leadership. Um, okay. So I figured we just would tackle that head on. Um, I guess I could go ahead and read those verses you know, unless you have them pulled up, and and I'll just have you um, just just comment. Okay. Um. All right, so this is 1 Timothy 2, uh, 11 through 12, and this is the New Living Translation. Women should learn quietly and submissively, and do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. All right, so that was, uh, hold on here. That was um, 1 Timothy. Yeah, yeah, of course, that's that was just the, the two verses. I mean, there's... right. There's a whole whole chapter there, um, but I figured I would just have you address that directly because when we hear that, it, it definitely does seem to contradict, right? Pretty much everything we're, you know we're we're talking about. So we, we we do have to sort of reconcile that with, um, with everything else we we've, we've been right. Addressing. All right, so. So we, you know, we went through uh, several examples of women who clearly function in leadership roles, clearly function in teaching roles. Uh, Priscilla, as you brought up earlier, she taught a man, you know, she taught Apollos, uh, yeah. her and her husband. Um, and, 
you know, we, we have people in the Old Testament like Deborah, who uh, undoubtedly would have exercised uh, authority as a judge and a prophetess, uh, which would have um, included men as well. Yeah. And so, um, so how do we deal with this apparent contradiction then? You know, like, um, again, um, some people want to say, well, those, all of those examples you gave earlier with Deborah, with Priscilla and all of those women, they are exceptions to the rule, uh, that women should not be allowed to teach, um, or have any sort of, uh, authoritative role in ministry. Um, I think that first Timothy two is the, uh, exception. And this is certainly, um, this is certainly a, a, a difficult passage, um, first, we need to kind of establish the context of what's going on here. So Paul was writing to Timothy um, in Ephesus, and much of the letter had to do with uh, countering some teachings that were going that were going on among the community members, like some people were teaching false things in Ephesus. And so that's what Paul is addressing. He's like, there's false teachers, there's false teaching going around in Ephesus, and he's instructing Timothy on how to deal with it. So um, when we get to the chapter in question, um, Paul, he, he begins uh, instructing people, men and women on, on various things. You know, he, uh, addresses the men in the community, exhorting them to pray without anger or quarreling. Um, and there were, there were issues in the community. Um, and then when we get to the specific, um, passage in question, the first Timothy two eleven, um, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. We have to read these statements, not in isolation, but within the context of everything that's going on, everything that Paul is addressing. So we know that there is an issue of false teaching going on around. We know there's an issue of false teachers. And, um, and then, you know, the, the other verse, uh, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. So let me talk about verse 11 really quick, and then I'll get into specifically the issue of teaching. Uh, the first thing I want to highlight about verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, is that Paul fully expects women to learn. He commands Timothy, let a woman learn. Yeah. So um, Tim Hegg, actually, uh, he's a theologian. He explains that the majority of the sages at this time actually generally felt that Torah study should be left primarily for the men. And so this was actually pretty radical for Paul to, to say this in his cultural context. He's taking a minority view and stressing equality between men and women in matters of Torah training and matters of studying the scriptures. Um, and so it's significant that Paul says the women are to learn. You know, the women are, uh, he instructs that the women are to learn. And, and that's going to be significant later too, as we discover why he gave this uh, instruction that they shouldn't teach. So um, 
When it comes to his instructions, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Uh, this is the only explicit prohibition in the Bible against women teaching. Um, so it's no wonder that this is at the crux of the debate. Yeah. But we need to interpret it, not again, as I said, not in isolation within the whole context of what Paul is addressing. This is an exceptional situation. This is not a general rule for all time that uh, Paul wants all Christians for all time to follow. He's not writing this in a vacuum. Right, this, right. Is an, this is an exceptional situation that he is addressing. So as I said earlier, there were people in Ephesus teaching false doctrine. We read about this in the first chapter. Uh, so just a, a chapter earlier uh, to a verse in question, uh, verses four through seven of chapter one, we, we learn about people in Ephesus teaching false doctrine. Apparently, these false teachers often targeted vulnerable women such as widows. And we see this in Paul's second letter to Timothy in, in chapter three, verse six, that the false teachers in Ephesus actually specifically targeted women. Why? Because widows at this time uh, often were the ones that would uh, host house churches. And so by virtue of hosting a house church, uh, by you know, facilitating those meetings, they kind of had an influence since it was their, their house, right? Yeah. And so false teachers are targeting women, uh, um, young widows uh, in particular, and then those women would go and spread false teachings as we read about in chapter five of First Timothy. Um, so that's the, that's the issue that Paul is dealing with. False teachers in Ephesus are spreading all of these false doctrines. They're specifically targeting women and women and those women are spreading those false teachings. So what is Paul's solution to this exceptional situation? Number one, the Ephesian women must not uh, teach. They should be barred from teaching and assuming authority in the congregation. Even if it's their house, their house church, they need to, they need to sit down. They need to be quiet because, yeah. you know, they, you know, they're spreading false doctrine. The second solution is that they must learn quietly from reliable teachers. That goes back to verse 11. And so, um, hmm. yeah, so why would they need to learn? Why would they need to sit down and learn? Presumably, it would be so that they would become equipped to teach eventually. Yeah. You know, if God has called them to teach, that they need to be equipped and, and learn from reliable teachers first in order to be able to, uh, you know, function in that role. But right now, in this exceptional situation, they're not, they're not equipped. So my suggestion, if we are to glean any principle from this passage to be applied today, because everyone agrees, you know, that this is, uh, we need to interpret this in context, we need to consider the cultural context, the immediate context, what is Paul specifically addressing, and then we look and we see what principles can be applied today. So the principle for today is not that women should be excluded from ministry. 
The principle is not that women in general are not to be teachers or have a, a leadership role in the congregation. The principle for today is that unqualified women and men who are known to believe and spread false teachings are not to be given a position of influence within the church. The, the problem was false teachers, and both men and women could be false teachers, but in this particular case in Ephesus, women were the ones being specifically targeted, and so that is why they're singled out. Um, so that is that is the issue, and, and I go into more detail. I know um, the, the rest of chapter two, you know, it talks about, um, you know, Adam and Eve, you know, Paul gives the, the analogy of Adam and Eve, you know, the man was burned first and everything. And so I, I unpack that a, a little bit more in, in that chapter of my book, but that's the essence of what Paul is dealing with. Uh, the essence of what he's dealing with uh, is uh, it needs to be, he's dealing with false doctrine, we need to interpret these passages in light of that situation. And the principle is not that women in general can't teach, because if that's the principle, then we have a contradiction. Yeah. Because Paul commends women teachers in Romans 16. You know, he, he commends Priscilla, who was a teacher. He commends Junia, who was an apostle, which would entail teaching. He commends Phoebe, who was a deacon, which would entail teaching. Yeah. So um, that is that would be the contradict that would be a contradiction if that's the principle. But but I think uh, my interpretation uh, better reconciles the the tension here uh, between this passage and everything else we covered. Does that make sense? No, that's great. Uh, that's a great explanation. That's very well said. Um, I also want to talk about Corinthians two uh, and uh, or as well I should say um, because on the surface, it, it, it does look like, okay, well, it, it's not completely isolated in Timothy because there's, there's more than one case right. here that we could say, well, Paul's saying this here in Timothy. He's also saying in the church of Corinthians, um, seemingly the same thing that women are, are, are not to be teaching. There are to be silent. Um, so I want to read that verse and have you comment on it as well. This is first Corinthians, uh, 14. Once again, it's a new living translation. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It's not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. Now, of course, that's just the one verse. Um, mm -hmm. I'd like for you to comment on that as well. Sure. Uh, well, yeah, at first glance, once again, if you read this, those verses in isolation, um, it's reasonable that you would come to that conclusion. Um, you know, that that's, that's what, uh, you know, if you read it in isolation, that, that's what you would have to conclude. But um, when we look at it in context, that can't possibly be what we're supposed to get from this. Uh, first of all, just logically, think about it logically for a minute. Think of the implications. It doesn't say teach. It doesn't see, say the woman, women aren't to teach. It says the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, okay? So it doesn't explicitly mention teaching. Of course, you know, if they can't speak, they can't teach either. But it says that they are to be silent. They are not even to speak. Right. So if we take this literally, if we take this with a wooden literalism, um, think of the implications of that. That would mean that women can't sing on the worship team because that would, 
that would uh, require them to, to use their voice, right? They wouldn't be yeah. completely silent in that case. Uh, they couldn't pray with and for others at church. They wouldn't be able to give announcements during the service. They couldn't publicly read to children in the nursery. Yeah. It says they should keep silent. So if there are already some problems with that, uh, that verse. There, that, that alone should prompt us to think that there must be something more going on here. Um, and so, again, when we compare this, um, when we compare this uh, seemingly contradictory passage with, uh, you know, let me start that over. When, when, we, when we look at this passage in light of everything else we've covered, you know, there is a contradiction there. Uh, there is an apparent contradiction. Yeah. And so, um, so we need to resolve it. Uh, and, and I think that we need to interpret this passage in light of the much more clear passages, uh, which do, you know, Paul commends women teachers, uh, you know, I've already went through all of that. Um, those seem a lot more clear than this. This seems a lot more ambiguous. Right. And so we should interpret the ambiguous passage in light of the clear passage. Clear, clear passages, and then try to try to unpack, um, you know, uh, in more detail what Paul is dealing with. So, based on the clear passages that we've gone through, it seems clear that First Corinthians fourteen thirty four through thirty five cannot be a general command for female silence in the congregation. Right. There must be something more going on. Uh, so why did Paul give these instructions for women to be silent? Well, um, what is the goal of Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 14? Paul's goal in this chapter is to have orderly church services because there was disorder in the congregation. And so Paul is giving instructions on how to maintain order within the congregations. And so there are several things he addresses. He addresses the use of certain spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecy. And he talks about how these gifts are to be used. And what's interesting here is that Paul tells not only women in verses 34 through 35, to be silent. He also tells men to be silent in certain circumstances. Hmm. For instance, if someone speaks in tongues, there must be an interpretation, and it must be only one person at a time, right. according to 1 Corinthians 14, 27. If there is no one to interpret the tongue, the one speaking must, quote, keep silent in church according to 1 Corinthians 14, 28. So that's the yeah. same language. Yeah. When it tells the women to keep silent, it says men are to keep silent too. The one who, uh, one speaking, if there's no interpretation, he is to keep silent. Prophets must prophesy one by one while others keep silent, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 30. So these calls for both men and women to be silent obviously do not mean complete silence for the entire service. Yeah. The point was to prevent people from disrupting the order of the service. Paul is giving instruction 
for how to maintain order. So we ought to interpret these verses, uh, verses 34 through 35, within the same context. These aren't general instructions. Again, Paul didn't write this in a vacuum. He wasn't saying, you know, in general, that women should just keep silent, that they're not allowed to speak in church. That's not what, that's not the point here. Yeah. Paul is addressing a specific situation. And so whatever it is that he's addressing, it's in view of having orderly services. So there are a range of interpretations for how to deal with this, because again, it is ambiguous. There, there's some ambi ambiguity here, and, and it's not clear cut, uh, you, you know, um, on, on what exactly the problem is. But uh, one way that we might reconstruct the problem is to look at Paul's solution. He says in the next verse, for verse 35, that these Corinthian wives are to ask their husbands at home if they have anything that they want to learn. Right. So, so we might, since, since the instruction is that they need to privately ask their husbands at home, we can surmise that whatever the problem is, it had to do with these wives doing something in public. They were publicly asking their husbands, uh, maybe, maybe publicly asking their husbands challenging questions, which uh, would have disrupted the flow of the service. Yeah. And um, in this ancient culture, if uh, a wife's public disagreement with her husband, um, if she publicly disagreed with her husband, um, it would humiliate and dishonor her husband. Yeah. Um, and so Paul had already kind of expressed concern about what outsiders might think of the congregation. Like, for example, he says, like, if an outsider comes into the congregation and you're all speaking tongues at once, they're all going to say you're out, you know, they're going to say you're all out of your mind. Yeah. Right. So he's already concerned about what outsiders are going to think. Yeah. And, and so he also advises his readers in first Corinthians to avoid causing other people to stumble. Yeah. And so if some Greek or Roman person came to the Corinthian gathering and saw wives publicly disputing with their husbands or challenging their husbands, uh, maybe when their husband is like giving a prophecy or something, they might well say, as, as Paul says, you know, you're out of your minds, just like yeah. they would say if they came in and they're all speaking tongues at once. Yeah. So um, the shame that Paul is speaking of here, you know, it's shameful for women to speak in church. The shame that he's speaking of here is not intrinsic shame, like it's shameful for women to speak, but yeah. it's shame in light of what the culture would view as inappropriate. That is wives publicly disagreeing with their husbands over these issues. And so, um, you know, uh, however we take this, I, I, will, I will say, you know, one, um, one other thing on that note, you know, um, our modern situation, of course, is very different than the ancient culture at Corinth, okay? So a society no longer looks down on women who are vocal about their opinions or disagreements at church or elsewhere, and that's fine, that's great. Uh, but there is still an enduring principle here. And the enduring principle, again, we, we just have to think more, we, we have to, we have to be more thoughtful about this. Okay. We, we can't just look at verses in isolation and, and, you know, just be, give these overly simplistic, uh, general rules like that women can't teach or women can't speak in church. We have to be more thoughtful. If there is a general principle here, uh, it's that, 
husbands and wives should not embarrass each other in public. That's the principle. And that looks different depending on your culture. In the ancient Corinthian culture, wives publicly disagreeing with their husbands or arguing with their husbands uh, at a church or something, or, or you know, even debating the scriptures with their husbands publicly and in front of other people at the church, that was viewed as shameful in light of the culture. And, you know, Paul is basically, he's saying, listen, be mindful of what outsiders would, would think of you if they came in and saw your meeting. Be mindful of that, you know? Uh, and so that's the principle. And so our culture is different. It's no longer a big deal for women to, to publicly disagree with people. It's no longer a big deal. But, but there is still a principle that men and women should not, our husbands and wives should not publicly, um, you know, dis, uh, embarrass each other uh, somehow. And so uh, th there's a lot more that can be said on that. Uh, but yeah, ba basically, um, you know, there, there's still, there's still some ambiguity, but one thing that we can say for sure is that this is not some general rule. This is not some, uh, some general rule that women should not teach or that they should be silent in the churches. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Um, that's very well said, very thorough. Um, but I want to get into some of the nuances that you addressed earlier, because ultimately okay. there, there are going to be, uh, there's still going to be um, people that fall on, on both sides of, of this issue. Um, okay. You mentioned extremes. And so I want to invite you kind of to, to address that. Um, okay. In recent news, and I, I think I sent you that I did want to discuss about this, um, you know, do you have an opinion on, on Beth Moore? And I guess I'll have you answer that and, and we'll see where we go from there. Sure. Um, not really. I mean, I, I'm familiar with the, the situation. It's been a while um, and I, I didn't really have time to, to you know, dig into it again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but basically what I, from what I remember, John MacArthur basically uh, publicly slammed her. You know, he, I think he like compared her ministry to like a salesman peddling jewelry or something like that. Yeah. And, and he just like publicly, you know, uh, yeah. insulted her, yeah. uh, insulted her ministry. And so, uh, and obviously John MacArthur comes from that very uh, complementarian fundamentalist, um, you know, perspective in Christianity that, you know, um, women are not to be in public ministry, that they're not to teach men. And, and even though I think Beth Moore's ministry um, is, is mainly directed to women, I don't think yeah. she's actively teaching men anyway. Right. Uh, but, but in either case, she does have a public ministry. And I guess, I don't know what the rule is there for complementarians, <laughs> I guess, uh, as you know, try to make it so that men don't like stumble upon your YouTube videos. I'm not sure how that works, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, where the line is there. But right. yeah, I mean, I, I'm not that familiar with Beth Moore. And I think Beth Moore is pretty, she's pretty complimentarian in her views. Uh, I know she's associated, I think, with the Gospel Coalition. And uh, I know that they're complimentarian. Um, and so I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't really have that strong of opinion other than, you know, John MacArthur probably shouldn't have, have uh, been so mean, you know, that's, I guess that's, that's really my only opinion no, on uh, it, but, but he, he has, I, I will say this really quick. I mean, he has his views and, you know, the, these debates, there are good arguments on both sides. You know, I, I disagree with my complimentarian friends, but I, I break bread with them 
I, and you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I, it's not an issue that I, that I particularly want to divide over. Uh, I, I highly respect John MacArthur um, and his views, I, even though I disagree with him. Um, and I, I think that we can coexist as, as believers, uh, despite our differences. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, in fact, you know, as you know, like my book wasn't even, um, uh, really directed to Christians who disagree with me. I mean, that, that was my, my book was more directed to answering objections from non-Christians, atheists, and, and, uh, modern feminists who have objections to the Bible. And so I really only have a, a little bit of, uh, of content that, that Christians would, you know, some Christians that would dis disagree with. But yeah, I mean, that that's sort of, uh, I guess, a, a very broad, you know, not specific <laughs> opinion no, on that. You know, um, so, yeah, yeah. I don't think you necessarily need a strong opinion. I, I just was curious mm -hmm. to see what you had to say, because it, it's somewhat recent in news and, and it's sort of on topic, um, you know, from the little, it's not something I'm like super familiar with myself either. Um, mm -hmm. From like, I think I picked up a, on an article um, recently, and it might have been as I was reading your book before or after, um, but it was a, it was about her. And from what I, from what I remember, uh, it was something that she had decided to leave uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, mm. And then she stated, uh, you know, that their stance on women leadership. And then she also mentioned like sexual abuse, uh, oh, wow. her reasons for that. Um, but really, you know, what I, what I also want to get into, I want to discuss now is, Kind of the fallout from that, um, as mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier, you've already you already said that you 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 don't want to divide over this issue. And right, that, right. I think you also mentioned that uh, you know that comment w w was mean, and I don't think we need to be mean um, and, and harsh. And I don't believe we need to divide either. But uh, you know, I think there there were uh, the article I, I I read there was women that were like picketing um, as a oh wow response for this with like signs. Um, Women picketing John MacArthur? Uh, I think it was picketing like either the Southern Baptist Convention or just the, you know, certain churches that, that have this teaching. Um, okay. And that kind of goes back to even what, you know, Paul, what you were talking about, what, what Paul's referring to about, you know, the outsiders. And I think that's, you know, from the mm -hmm. outside looking in, if, if a non-believer looks at a church like that, that's divided, um, mm -hmm. you know, what does that do for our witness? So uh, I, I want you to speak on that. You know, if, um, you know, if you go to a, a, a church and, and or you, your fellowship with people that are on the other side of this issue, um, you know, what do you say, uh, what, what do you say to that, to that, that person? Yeah. I mean, so like, um, what do I say to a, a person who disagrees with me on this? Yeah, speak uh, a little bit more to uh, what you said about the importance of not being divisive. Right. Divisive, I should say. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I have personal friends who disagree with me on this. And so, you know, it, it's something that we, you know, we pretty much agree on on almost everything else, in, in fact. Yeah. Uh, and so, it, I mean, it is, um, you know, it, it's a very, it's a very complex uh, discussion, uh, because, and I think just what I what I try to do is I, I try to be charitable. You know, I don't, I don't lump in every complementarian, every person who differs with me. I don't lump them in with like, you know, 
patriarchal fundamentalists, you know, are like people that are, um, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like, I don't, I don't try to, uh, I don't try to create a caricature, you know, like I, I, I try to be honest. I, I recognize that there are good arguments on, on both sides and that uh, solid, knowledgeable Christians can disagree with, with uh, me on this. And, and, you know, it's just something that, you know, that we'll probably debate until Christ comes, <laughs> comes back. Um, you know, it is, it is important. I think it's an important issue uh, because there is the question of like, what do you do if you're a woman and you feel called to teach? Like you feel, you feel like God has called you into ministry and you attend a church that maybe doesn't have, they're not egalitarian, you know, they're not, they're more complementarian. And how do you, how do you deal with that? And I think it's like on a case by case basis, you know, I, it really depends on, on your church. Like I said earlier, it's, there's kind of a spectrum with lots of nuance. Um, there's extremes on both sides. And then there's a lot of middle ground where, where you can kind of, um, uh, work within that. And, uh, just, I mean, Beth Moore would be a good example. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure she's, uh, complementarian, or at least she's part of that tradition that would be yeah. more complementarian. Yeah. And, and she's, she's still able to flourish in her ministry. Um, and so, like I said, you know, obviously her particular tradition or, or her, um, her side of the church, you know, is more open, e even though they're more complementarian, she might not, be, she, she might not be able to be a pastor, right, of, of a local congregation, but she's still able to flourish in her local, in her public ministry, and, and so on and so forth. And so there may be ways for women to, to be able to still, e even if they disagree with, with some of the theology, they can still flourish in their ministry. And, and I just, or, or, you know, it may be that they need to find a new church too, you know, that, that would allow them to, to, uh, um, you know, uh, pursue what God, uh, put on their life to do. Yeah. And, and that's just a case by case basis that we need to figure out. And, and so there, there's, there's, there's a lot of, it's important because there, there are a lot of, um, um, you know, I mean, ministry is our lives, you know, and, and ministry is my life. And I, I believe that God called me into ministry. And, and if a woman feels that way, that she was called in into ministry and that, that, uh, God allows her to do that. And if men, you know, stand in her way from that, um, you know, if church leadership stands in her way, you know, it's an important question. People need to wrestle through that, uh, the best way to handle that. But generally speaking, I do think that, I do think that we should be able to coexist and, and that starts with, man, I'm, I'm digressing a whole bunch uh, no, from no, your you question. Know, Sorry you about that, but is, uh, what I want to discuss, go ahead. Yeah. But, uh, the, uh, generally speaking, uh, it starts with charity. We need to be charitable to each other. Um, people on my side, the egalitarian side, we can't, you know, say every complementarian is just like this, uh, you know, uh, Fun, sexist, you know, fundamentalist, whatever. And, you know, uh, people on the complementarian side also need to not 
care, uh, you know, create a caricature of our position of, of egalitarians, you know, they need to, you know, we're not feminists. My, my entire book is <laughs> like a rebuke of feminism. Yeah. It's a, it's a answering objections from feminists. So I'm not a feminist and, and most biblical egalitarians, they're not feminists, you know, they just have a different view on this particular topic of what women are permitted to, to do and pursue in, in ministry. And so, yeah, um, yeah, just being charitable, recognizing that there are good arguments on both sides and, and that Christians who differ with each other can have honest disagreements, but still count each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord, you know, with the same ultimate goal of glorifying God. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, that was very well said. Uh, and I, I think I, I would agree with everything you said there. Um, you know, we, we need to, you know, di- di- you know, divide over the gospel and what, what's important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. And that's something we need to hold on to. Um, and, and, and that's that's something that uh, is, is worth fighting and dividing over for, I, I believe. Right, that. Um, right. Whereas something like this, um, I, you know, I was actually reading in my quiet time today in, in Titus, um, this is Titus 3, verse 9, do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual uh, pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These are things, uh, these things are useless and a waste of time. Um, and, you know, all throughout the New Testament, uh, we're, we're called not to, not to be quarrelsome. Um, right. And uh, I think, as you stated, uh, for for a woman that may be going to a church um, that has a certain view on a women leadership, you know there there is room for them. Um, you know, mo- you know there, there's room for them to to to, to pray uh, mm-hmm. to lead in, in, w- in women's ministry, um, and it's one of those things that you said if if there's if there's a, a calling for you, uh, you know for for something pastoral, you know there there may be something case by case, you know, right. something that you need to consider. Um, and there's opportunity at a different denomination for you to, to, to flourish in that way. Um, but I don't think it, it's useful to, to try to sway and cause division w- within a church body over something like this. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you know, and, and really, if we look at, if we look at the big picture, in, in some of these issues, I, you know, I don't believe there's any church uh, that, that's going to be perfect um, where you oh, no. and you feel like you you're able to 100% agree with every single thing there. Um, you right. kind of have to weigh what's important, and and you have to, as you said, be be charitable. Um, uh, so, very well said. I want to get into some of the other kind of general topics. Um, men and women that you address um, really in that first chapter uh, mm-hmm. of, of your book. Um, let me see. So does the power struggle between men and women go back to the garden when, when God said that Eve would desire or desire would be for her husband uh, and he would rule over her? Mm-hmm. Right. So I, that's kind of where I make the case. Um, so overall, what I try to establish in that book, uh, especially in particular, that first chapter, is the overall trajectory of scripture. And I think the, the trajectory is God 
creates everything perfect, right? You have the garden and you have male-female equality um, in the garden. And then you have the fall. And then you have God condescending to, to uh, meet men, mankind where they are and draw them back to that creation ideal as much as possible. And then when we get to the New Testament, this is that's furthering that trajectory where until ultimately we get to the new heavens and new earth where the garden of Eden is uh, entirely restored, so to speak. Yeah. Right. So uh, what I see in the very beginning of Genesis uh, and what I argue in the book is that God establishes male, female equality that he creates uh, man and woman to be partners uh, in God's mission, and um, that neither one is inferior to the other, that uh, they, they serve with each other uh, to accomplish God's purposes. And so where that changes, so, so God did not create any inferiority between men and women in, in the beginning. Yeah. Um, where that changed was at the fall. And so uh, as you mentioned, there was uh, the curse um, as a result of the fall, which uh, God said Eve's desire would be for her husband and he would rule over her. So I think that's ultimately the origin of this power struggle, as you put it, between men and women, you know, the uh, proverbial battle of the sexes. That's, that's where it starts right here. And um, the power struggle is a result of sin, ultimately. I mean, just like every conflict thing, I mean, every every uh, bad thing in the world, <laughs> it ultimately comes back to sin. It ultimately comes back to the fall. Yeah. And so um, in the beginning, God created, I, you know, uh, the creation ideal um, is uh, male-female equality and partnership. Um, the woman's desire for her husband as a result of sin, um, it, it suggests, the Hebrew word there suggests an urge to dominate her husband. And um, we see this because the only other place this word occurs in Genesis is when God warns Cain that sin, uh, you know, in the chapter four, that sin is crouching at the door, ready to pounce on him. And it says its desire is for Cain. So we see sort of this desire to dominate. Yeah. Um, you know, sin wants to dominate Cain. And um and then, you know, man, you know, will rule over woman, you know, in, in such a situation, men will rule over women and men are, you know, they're physically stronger than, than women. So what do we see in the ancient Near East? What do we see in fallen humanity, you know, after the Garden of Eden in the ancient Near East? We see, um, you know, patriarchy. We see men ruling over women. And that's how societies are set up. That's how societal systems are, are established and so on and so forth. Um, but that's not God's ideal uh, vision right? Yeah. For, for mankind. His ideal vision is what we see in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. So in, in this uh, curse here, you know, of, uh, you know, Eve's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. This is not God assigning gender roles. This right. is God rather describing the consequences of sin right. uh, rather than be inclined toward unity and partnership, man and woman will be in conflict with each other. Yeah. And, th and this is something that uh, 
God tries to work out. This is why God gives the Torah. This is why he gives his law um, in the Old Testament is he's, he's meeting mankind where they are in this messed up fallen world, and he's trying to direct them towards something better. He's trying to point them back toward the garden as much as possible. That's the design of these laws, and that's why so many of them are um, so concerned with, with uh, the protecting women and uh, working within these patriarchal systems of the ancient Near East and, and um, protecting women within those systems and also giving hints of male-female equality within, the, within uh, God's commandments. Just to give a really quick example, you have uh, the, uh, the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and mother. Right, right, yeah. And so often we, we kind of gloss over that. But in the ancient Near East, mothers were often controlled by their sons. Mm. So God, by giving the, that commandment that, no, you know, sons and daughters must honor their parents, that mother and father have equal authority over their children. Wow, yeah. They're, they're equally deserving of honor from their children. That is uh, an example of, um, you know, God sort of nudging his people back toward the way things are supposed to be, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and so that's, that's what I think, uh, that, that's kind of how I, um, as we go through the rest of the book, that, that's sort of what I establish as we go through some of these problematic passages that people often bring up, um, you know, about where it seems like women are being treated as property. And, and when you take a closer look at it, you, you see, oh no, God gave these commandments in order to protect women, in order to establish their value, um, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And, and so, yeah, really long answer to your question and, and a bunch of digressions again. So sorry about that. Yeah, I want to go back to the garden. No, you're good. Um, yeah. So you, you talked about Eve being made from Adam's rib and you, and you, you kind of dig into the, the Hebrew and you, you brought out a, a concept that I'd never heard before that I thought was actually really beautiful. Uh, so I want mm -hmm. you to talk about that and then um, talk about the, you know, there's often an argument that we hear that the women are inferior because they were created after Adam. Uh, so I want you to address that mm -hmm. as well. Right. Well, the word um, for side there, it says, uh, you know, she was made from Adam's side uh, or rib. The word actually means side, like a side of a hill or a side of the mountain. Uh, and so the passage is actually, it's meant to express partnership and intimacy. You know, it, it's given as, you know, you know, she's literally expressed metaphor, well, literally metaphorically, she's metaphorically, um, you know, Adam's other half you know, that he's, uh, it's not good for man to be alone. So he needs a partner, uh, you know, for that, uh, you know, for, for the, uh, the life and the mission that God, uh, gave him. And so the term does not, uh, entail inferiority at all. It's meant to actually express equality and partnership, um, regarding women being created after, Adam, you know, woman created after him and out of him, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of feminists will argue, you know, that that somehow suggests that women are ontologically inferior, you know, like, oh, look at what it says, like what woman depends on man, right, you know, for her existence, and uh, she's created from him. And um, that's not what, that's not at all what, what that passage is teaching. And, and if we think about it logically, 
uh, humans were created after animals. So does that mean that humans are inferior to animals? No, not at all. Adam was made out of dirt. Same, same terminology, you know, with women, with the woman. Uh, he was made out of dirt. That doesn't mean that he is inferior to dirt. So if, if we just think of it logically, I mean, a lot of these uh, objections are, are just not very good. I, I actually got a book uh, written, it's a collection of essays from feminist atheists. It's called uh, Women vs. Religion. And uh, the book is a, a collection of essays. And that this is where I got a lot of these arguments that I respond to throughout the book. And, and you know, you'll see if you, if you look at the footnotes, you'll see that I often cite this book, you know, as, yeah. as uh, where these arguments are coming from. And yeah, so I mean, there's, there's some there's some understandable objections, you know, when you look at uh, certain passages uh, that I, I deal with uh, more thoroughly in the book, uh, like the, the passages talking about rape and things like that. I mean, there, there are some understandable objections and, and you know, those passages, if, if you're not familiar with the context, um, you know, you are, you know, they do seem very troubling. And so that's, you know, they, they deserve, um, you know, a thorough response. But then there are some other objections like the, the one we just talked about where the woman's created after man and out of him and that somehow denotes inferiority that, right. you know, the, the, they just aren't very good arguments. Yeah. Um, all right, I have a couple more uh, questions and then I'll, um, then we'll, we'll kind of get into some, some personal questions. I'm trying to fit it all in here. Sure. Um, so the helper, the word helper, um, kind mm -hmm. of in our, our common vernacular, when we hear that, we kind of often associate that with like some sort of like assistant or something like that. Um, can you talk about th that word helper and, and, and what that means in the Hebrew? Sure. Well, um, we know that it cannot denote inferiority. So uh, the word helper, uh, it's uh, the Hebrew ezer. We know it cannot denote inferiority because the word is often used for God. And there are several passages where God is actually the Ezer, the helper of his people. And so obviously God is not inferior to his people. He's not just like some secretary to his people. He's not, he's not our little butler in the sky, you know, who, um, who serves us. Uh, so that, um, so just uh, automatically right there, the word in itself does not denote inferiority. So what does it mean that the woman is, is a helper to the man? Well, uh, the, the immediate context here kind of clears it up. God says that he will make a helper in Ezer fit for man. And this word is konegdu, which means uh, like his counterpart or corresponding to him. So again, these words used together um, if we look at the immediate context, it's a helper fit for him. So as Eric Konegdu, this suggests equality, not inferiority. In fact, a better translation, according to many scholars, would actually be ideal partner. Right. God created woman as an ideal partner for man. And I really like the way the scholar Alice Matthews puts it. She says, Eve was not created to serve Adam but serve with him. 
And um, so that is, that's the idea being communicated there. Um, yeah, when you really, when you take the, when you take the language seriously, like, like again, the only way that you can, um, I, you know, helper again is not really a, the best translation there. Um, but again, like you kind of have to approach these passages already assuming something in order to get the idea that this is um, denoting female inferiority. When you look at how the word is used throughout scripture, and when you look at its immediate context and the other words it's used with, um, you, you get a different sense. Yeah. So this is something I, I didn't actually send your way uh, prior to the interview, but just kind of mm -hmm. came came to my mind. This is something, so I'll have you comment on it. Uh, this mm -hmm. is something that uh, I heard on a podcast uh, on Focus on the Family of Marriage, and they spoke about the weaker vessel. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have the I don't have the the verse for that, but um, it spoke about how that the word weaker weaker vessel is, uh, in, in other places is referred to like a like a precious uh, relic, like a piece of pottery or something that, that's, mm -hmm. that you would consider fragile um, and, and very valuable. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I don't know if, I don't think that was addressed in your book, but yeah, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll give you the opportunity to comment on that. But that was something that um, I think sort of related to, to what we're talking about here with the word like helper that might be um, misconstrued. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, again, you just kind of have to, you kind of have to make assumptions about what that means in order to, to get the idea that uh, you know that the word itself implies inferiority, or that you know women are just uh, you know fragile or, or whatever. I mean, we we don't get that in scripture. I mean, there's plenty of women. Deborah, there's uh, Yael, right? Who uh, you know <laughs> stabs the guy with the tent peg. I mean, there's plenty of women throughout scripture that. Um, you know, they aren't weak, you know, that that's, I don't think that is a, uh, I don't think that uh, phrase that Peter uses, I think it's in first Peter is, is meant to imply that, um, you know, women are, are just like frightened little rabbits that need to be, you know, kind of like protected, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I do, I do think that men and women are different, men and, uh, and men and, you know, men are j stronger than women. Men, I think, are created to protect women because they are stronger than women. Uh, and I, I believe that women are, are different from men. You know, they're, they are uh, certainly more inclined to be more emotional and more sensitive uh, to things. And so, uh, yeah, me being an an egalitarian certainly doesn't mean that I, I think men and women are exactly the same in every way. Um, I, I do think there's a, a differences. And I think that's probably just what Peter is bringing out, you know, that women should be protected, that they should be, uh, that they, they're valuable and, and precious and that, you know, we should protect them. So I don't, I don't think it, yeah, it denotes any kind of, uh, inferiority. Yeah, so I, I want to talk about submission because this is some, one of those one of those verses that um, women tend to just really shriek at, um, and, right. and 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 it, it, it's also a, a verse that is abused um, by right. men as well. Uh, so talk about submission and kind of quickly, um, you know, without getting you know, because we could probably do a whole podcast on on just this one issue. Um, but right. just address this uh, idea of submission that we see uh, in scripture as well. 
Sure. Well, I, d I defend something called mutual submission. And basically what that means is that uh, the, the phrase that Paul uses in uh, Ephesians 5.21, where he says, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ, that that is sort of the overriding statement that governs everything he, else he says in that, in that uh, section. And so what he's describing is uh, mutual submission. And then he goes on to talk about you know, it's made, it's more explicit for the wife than it is for the husband in that section, but the husband sacrificing himself for his wife and loving his wife, the way that Christ loves the church, that is a, um, th that is a, a kind of submission to her. And so there is a, um, there is a mutual submission between, uh, both parties. So wives certainly should submit to their husbands, no, no doubt about it. But husbands also need to love their wives um, and have an attitude of submission in that way to, to love their, her, um, their wives as they love their own body, to, to even be willing to give up his own life for her as Christ, you know, gave up his life for the church. And um, so, yeah, that that is uh, even if we even if we just take a, a plain reading of the text, I mean, it's very clear that Paul is not giving instructions that wives are to um, basically just be slaves to their husbands. That's not his point there. I mean, he, you know, take all the mutual submission stuff and, and put that on the shelf. If you just read the passage, he's not saying that men need to rule their women, you right. know, like their possessions. No, he he treats women as, as people that, you know, they need to be cared for. They need to be loved and, and husbands need to go out of their way to, to be considerate of them that they need to, as Paul sells says elsewhere, you know, consider others needs before your own. That is the same principle he's teaching here in Ephesians five, you know, is that men need to consider the needs of uh, you know, husbands need to consider the needs of their wives before their own needs. Wives need to consider the needs of their husbands before their own needs. That's all he's saying. And um, so, yeah. And and by the way, the word submission there, it, it doesn't mean like submit like you're in the army, like you have to just uh, you know, you know, get down and do twenty push-ups, like and and follow orders. Uh, and if you don't, you're going to be punished. That's not the sense of the word there. The, the sense of the word submission there in these passages dealing with uh, um, husband-wife relationships means voluntary yielding. It's not something that's forced. In fact, scripture explicitly commands husbands not to be harsh with their wives elsewhere, like in Colossians 3.19. Yeah. So uh, it doesn't, yeah. So hopefully that helps. I, I know I kind of um, went a, a few different directions there. Uh, just to try to explain it very quickly, but yeah, well, um, very clear. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Um, so this is uh, kind of my, my, my last question on this topic, and then we'll move into those personal questions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is basically like your, your last chapter in the book, it was sort of summative. Um, and you, you make an argument uh, for Christianity versus feminism. So which is better mm -hmm. for women, Christianity or feminism? Christianity. Uh, for many reasons. Um, and yeah, so I, I lay that out in the final chapter, as you said, and, and I make several arguments for that. Um, basically, I believe that fem modern feminism today actually degrades women and, uh, 
in, in, in several different ways. And, and whereas Christianity, had, you know, elevates women, if Christian biblical Christianity, uh, if we, you know, Christianity that's based on the Bible's teachings, it elevates women, it uh, includes women, it, you know, it empowers women. And I think that modern feminism today actually does the opposite. It, it does it does the opposite of what they say they they try to do. And uh, through the values of modern feminism that are promoted today, like uh, abortion on demand, and um, you know, uh, promis uh, promiscuity, and and you know, women should be like men, you know, in, in every way. Um, I think that uh, that actually does harm to women, and I actually cite uh, several scientific studies that that back me up on that. Um, you know, the tremendous harm that uh, abortion brings, the tremendous harm that uh, you know the the kind of lifestyle that modern feminism promotes brings to women, the the psychological damage that it does to them, and. Um, yeah, so I, I would just, uh, if you're interested in, any of your listeners are interested in that, I would just encourage them to get the book and yeah. to, for the full argument there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I definitely recommend the book. I mean, even if you fall uh, on, on, you know, even if you disagree with the view that we talked about as far as women and leadership in the church, uh, that's just one chapter. And, you know, I think there, there's a lot that's, that's really rich. Um, and, you know, I think it's good also to hear, even if you do disagree, hear, hear both sides. Um, so you can, so, so you can, you know, better understand your, your, your own view. I think it's always important to, to hear both sides. Um, anyway, so we will move awesome. on, on to just like I said, more personal questions. Um, you have a favorite book of the Bible, character of the Bible and verse of the Bible. Favorite book of the Bible, character of the Bible, verse of the Bible, favorite book of the Bible. Um, for Old Testament, it would have to be Ecclesiastes. For New Testament, it would have to be James. Wow. Favorite, yeah, favorite character of the Bible um, would be, uh, well, aside from Messiah, because I mean, that has to be the default answer, right? right. But uh, if, we, uh, if we're not allowed to pick him, um, I would probably say Peter, probably because I, I relate to him in a lot of ways. Um, you know, just uh, his struggle, you know, his... Uh, um, and it's just, it's, he's just an interesting character, the way that, you know, he, he's so passionate and yet he, he falters, you know, he denies the Messiah, right. But then, you yeah. know, the, he, he comes to believe in the Messiah and he's raised up as this, uh, very impactful figure, um, in the early church. And so I, I just, I just like, uh, like him a lot. Yeah. And favorite verse in the Bible, uh, I actually wrote it down is, um, James 4, 14, which says, uh, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Very Ecclesiastic. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so this kind of correlate there. Um, yep. but, but yeah, um, that, that, that's great, man. Um, mm -hmm. I hear, heard a lot about, you know, since doing this podcast here a lot of paul um you know mm -hmm. a lot about a peters and you've seen that there's kind of there's different dynamics in those and so it's interesting when people gravitate towards paul or they'll gravitate towards towards peter um so mm -hmm. i like that um all right so what about uh favorite movies tv shows uh, and then music and, and books oh yeah i don't know i 
I guess probably Napoleon Dynamite is uh, one <laughs> yeah. of my favorites. Yeah. Um, I have a weird sense of humor, man. I yeah, Napoleon Dynamite. I just like weird stuff. Um, I I'm a '90s kid, so I grew up uh, on stuff like Nick, '90s Nickelodeon, like Run and Stimpy and Rugrats and Doug, <laughs> and so those are kind of like those were my jam back in the day, yeah. and and those definitely kind of shaped my my uh, uh, taste, I guess, when it comes to yeah. entertainment and and um, yeah, I, I can't really just off the top of my head, I can't really think of um, other movies that I've seen recently that uh, that I really liked. No, I mean, that, that's, yeah. that's good. Those, those are each kind of mm-hmm. well within their own lane. Uh, there's kind of like nothing like um, right. Napoleon Dynamite. Um, what about favorite uh, music or books? So music, uh, lately, um, lately I've been really interested in, uh, instrumental music, like, um, math rock. I don't know if you're familiar with that genre, but, um, yeah, it's, it's very, you're just going to have to look it up. Just search, search math rock. Um, um, some bands like Covet, Covet is a instrumental group, uh, mostly instrumental. Um, that's kind of the stuff I've been interested in, like progressive, math rock very interesting times time signatures um yeah it's very unique uh and so i like that um lately uh i grew up in in high school i was really into emo and uh that kind of that kind of music yeah um so math rock and it's kind of i think like the evolution from that you know because it's unique and and different and yeah and uh, uh you know emotional melodic all of that um yeah favorite favorite books you said yeah favorite books favorite books um i'm i'm mainly i mainly only read theology books um so i'm really into bible commentaries i i really like tim hegg uh he's one of my favorite theologians i read a lot of his commentaries um one book that really rocked my world recently probably the book that's rocked my world the most and it actually, I quote him several times in my book, is God, is God a misogynist? And he deals with a lot of similar things that I deal with in my book, but yep. that is a Flame of Yahweh by Dr. Richard Davidson. That book is incredible. It's massive. Uh, it, it's, it's like 600 pages, I think. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's very massive. Like all of the pages are like half footnotes. And so, I mean, it, it's a lot of inter, uh, information. And so if that's your thing, I, I definitely recommend it, but it's, it's definitely very, um, very, uh, uh, I guess, what, what's the word, I guess, scholarly, you know, I mean, oh, it's, yeah. yeah, very, very academic. There you go. Yeah. Um, so that's, um, that's something that I really, really enjoyed. Cool. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, what do you like to do in your free time? Um, just hang out with, hang out with family. Um, yeah, hang out with family, hang out with friends, have deep conversations. Uh, I do play guitar. Um, and so I, sometimes I'll go and I'll play at open mic nights and I'll, you know, yeah, do stuff like that. Cool. Awesome, man. Um, so this will be the last question and then we'll close out. Um, if you kept dinner with five people dead or alive, who would they be? 
Okay, so number one would be William Lane Craig. He is my favorite Christian apologist, and I've just always wanted to meet him and, and talk to him, pick his brain on some things. Yeah. Number two would be Christopher Hitchens. He's an atheist. He's he's passed away, but he's he was a really well known atheist uh, back in the day. Uh, very interesting guy, um, and so, something that um, you know. I, I probably, even though I disagree with them, I, I still, I just still find him very compelling and interesting. Yeah. And I, I would like to talk to him about, you know, some stuff and maybe persuade him <laughs> toward a, yeah. toward my views. Same thing with Bill Maher. Bill Maher, he's a, yeah. a liberal television host, uh, also an atheist. Uh, and, and yet, even though he's liberal, I'm, I'm pretty conservative, even though he's liberal and he's an atheist, uh, he has a lot of good points that he brings up and he kind of challenges liberals and, and, you know, on his show. And so there's like common ground there. And I just think yeah. it would be interesting to sit down with him and, and again, just try to on, you know, from common ground, you know, have an interesting discussion and, and all of that. Um, yeah. Other than that, uh, the Apostle Paul, for obvious reasons, uh, want to get him on the record of some, you know, confusing things he said and, and yeah. you know, clear it up and have a voice recording and prove, <laughs> prove some things to my friends. And then uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, is a Christian theologian that I would love to love to meet and sit down with. Awesome, man. Yeah. Great response. Those are those mm -hmm. are very, very well thought out. Um, mm -hmm. A true, true apologist. Um <laughs> Cool, man. Uh, well, if you'd close this out in prayer, um, we'll, uh, yeah. we'll conclude. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, um, thank you so much for having me on. It's a huge honor uh, to, to talk to you, and I, I hope your listeners were blessed. And uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, just this opportunity to discuss your words, uh, to discuss theology, and uh, theology is just the study of God, and we love to study you, Lord. We love to get in deep. We love to, um, you know, just uh, find out what honors you, what, you know, what glorifies you, what you expect of us. And we just want to walk that out the best that we can. And we're so grateful for your son uh, that you sent to die for us uh, so that we can be saved and redeemed and reconciled unto you. And we just uh, exalt him. And we are uh, just, uh, we just pray for your wisdom, you, could, you to give us wisdom and for everyone that's listening to this podcast that you would bless them and uh, that um, you would use this discussion for your glory and for the edification of your body in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just, um, piggyback on what you're saying. Thank you so much uh, for coming on, man. I truly, really, really enjoyed our conversation today. Um, go ahead and tell everybody uh, how to get in touch with you and, and where to get your book. Amen. Well, thanks, man. Again, it was, it was great. And uh, yeah, if you want to connect with me, um, you can reach me at my website, davidwilber.com. That's david, W-I-L-B-E-R.com. And uh, I'm also on all the social media. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Facebook, Twitter. So you can search for me there. Um, but yeah, would love to connect with you. And uh, thanks for listening. Right on, man. All right. Thanks for coming on. Okay. Cool, man. See you. All right. Cool, man. Thanks. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, share with somebody you know. 
leave us a rating and review that helps get the show out there and like and subscribe all that good stuff you can email me at the weird christian podcast at gmail.com and with that being said we'll catch you on the next one